0: radio presents
1: in 2014 director christopher
0: nolan and star matthew mcconaughey bent the rules of gravity to give the world a new hope in 2020 we continue our ride on the evan williams train the film is interstellar the whiskey is evan williams single barrel vintage and we'll review them both this is the the film and 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 whiskey podcast Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2014 Christopher Nolan film, Interstellar. Okay, now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. Brad, this is the second Christopher Nolan film that we've done just this season on the podcast. We started with The Dark Knight, we're moving to Interstellar. I hope that someday we get around to doing Inception cuz I love that movie. So, I guess we're Christopher Nolan fanboys now.
1: Uh, I I don't know, man. I was kind of surprised that you had another movie from this director. I I haven't heard of him very much and honestly his two movies so far
0: have been garbage. So, <laughs> right, absolutely. So I'm actually really excited to talk about this movie, Brad, because I'm going to just kind of come out and spoil my take on the movie right up front. I'm not really a huge fan of this movie, and I think part of the reason I included this movie on the list was because every time Christopher Nolan comes out with the movie, there is a huge contingency of Chris Nolan fanboys that, without fail, vote this movie a 10 out of 10 on IMDb before it ever even comes out, skews the rating. And then after the movie comes out, we decide, like, is it good? Is it bad? And the rating kind of adjusts accordingly. Interstellar is one of those movies that I think most people would agree is probably not one of Nolan's best films. And yet it's a movie that you still hear people defend pretty, like, vigorously. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about the movie. Brad, had you ever seen this movie prior to watching it for the podcast? Robert, I have never seen the movie Interstellar before. Oh, cool. See, I figured you may have just because, again, it's Chris Nolan. It's probably, you know, it was a really popular movie and made a lot of money when it came out. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say after only one viewing. But before we get into our breakdown of the movie, let's introduce our favorite segment. This segment is called Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that we've just seen. A lot of times he's seeing the movie for the first time, like today. So, Brad, can you walk our listeners through a spoilerific introduction to the movie Interstellar?
1: Yeah, Bob, I'm just surprised you pointed out that this is our second Christopher Nolan movie. You didn't point out that this is our
0: second Jessica Chastain movie. It We're is disappointed in you. And it's our second movie featuring actor Wes Bentley. Really? Yeah, the guy who—well, uh, spoiler alert—but the guy who dies on the water planet. Wah He—he he was uh, Ricky in American Beauty. Wait, he was Ricky in American Beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kid with the bag. Oh, that was him.
1: Yeah, and he's also in the the Hunger Games. He that is one time with that interesting yeah. facial hair. Yeah, man, we're just making all the connections here. All right, Brad, let's let's so, break it down. <laughs> so the movie Interstellar. Uh, yeah, it's a movie about a humanity and an Earth that has. Um, Been devastated by some sort of apocalyptic event that they seem to call the blight. You know, we ran out of food. We didn't use our resources well. And some sort of infection got into our crops and we weren't able to feed everybody. And the Earth is just barely surviving at this point. And we find out that Matthew McConaughey was a fighter pilot and that he was a pilot for NASA. And that he is now a farmer because all all the Earth really needs is farmers to make sure that we don't die. And yet there's something mysterious going on at his house and his daughter feels like there's something communicating to her in her room. And no, it is not dead people, Allah la Shyamalan. It is gravity and that this gravity is telling her coordinates to a location. And so they go to that location and they discover the remnants of NASA. And while there, they get suckered into going on this exploration mission to try and establish a new colony for humanity. So Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway and some other people, including Ricky from American Beauty, they head on out into space and they are trying to go through this wormhole to go to another planet and see if there are any planets that are inhabitable by humans. You know, they sent these probes out a long time ago with some other humans, you know, space explorers in it. And bam, they're going out there trying to find some places for humans to inhabit. And that's like the first half of the movie. So the second half of the movie, they find their way to the first planet and it's all water and it's terrible and it's not good for life. And they find out that because of gravity distorting time... That the person probably had just landed and sent a signal that there was life because he found water. But then there was massive gravity waves that killed him. And he sent billions of messages saying that it was good, even though it was really bad. So they leave there after losing Ricky. R.I.P. Ricky. Uh, And then they head to the second planet and they find Matt Damon. I mean, Dr. Man. And he tells them his planet's good to go. But then he lied and he's trying to escape and do something else. And you find out that the original NASA guy who sent them on their mission is bad and there is no chance of them ever coming back to Earth. So they get into a fight with Matt Damon and leave, and Matthew McConaughey sacrifices himself to get the Anne Hathaway character off to another planet to restart a human colony. Matthew McConaughey gets pulled into a black hole and realizes that somebody had created a tesseract for him to communicate with his daughter in her room because they can just look through time and, and send gravity through time. And so Matthew McConaughey sends his daughter a message and she gets it and she figures out how to use gravity for them instead of against them. And she becomes the big bad famous scientist who fixes humanity's problems. And Matthew McConaughey wakes up on this special space station and he's all good to go. And his daughter's really old and about to die. And so he heads off to find Anne Hathaway, who somehow is still just hanging out on the planet,
0: just landed to try and restart the population. Brad, so, Brad I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I don't know if, if you haven't seen this movie before. I don't know if Brad Explains makes any sense this week. But at the same Bob, time, I also don't think you did a bad job explaining it. It's just I'll really say, hard to put into words what is going on in this movie. There's a lot going on in this
1: movie, and I really do feel like I boiled it down to the essential points. But it is
0: two hours and 45 minutes long, so... Here's the weird thing about this movie. It has a lot going on, and yet it's, it kind of has almost nothing going on. There are very few things that really happen in this movie. Like, there's an inciting incident that gets Matthew McConaughey into space. Matthew McConaughey is in space. They find out that there are three habitable planets. They visit the first planet. Something bad happens. They visit the second planet. Something bad happens. And then, you know, like you said, McConaughey sacrifices himself, which actually ends up saving humanity. And we get the ending of the film. And that's pretty much all of the major plot points in the movie. And yet somehow this movie is stretched to two hours and 45 minutes. And I have to say, this is a long freaking movie, Brad. Yeah, it really is. Uh, there's there's so much of it that I'm not sure why it's there, and yet by the end of the movie, you're like, yeah, that all just happened. Stuff went on. Yeah, Wait. it's it's really hard to describe why I don't care for this movie because I mean I'm gonna try, obviously, but <laughs> n- <laughs> but Christopher really, yeah, you know, but Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan are writing partners, and they wrote this movie together, and I think that Nolan. A lot of times what he seems to try to do is to find the most clever way of telling a story. It kind of happens with Dunkirk, where you find out that the movie is being told on three separate timelines, like you're watching one like, all the people on the beach, everything happens over the course of a week. All the people in the boats, it happens over the course of a day. And all the people in the airplanes, it's happening over the course of an hour. And yet he's cutting them together as if they're happening at the same time. Way it's, to spoil Dunkirk for well, me. Uh, well, it doesn't really spoil the movie, but <laughs> it, it's a really clever way of setting it up. And the problem that I have with Nolan is that I don't think the clever way is always the best way to tell a story. And Nolan is kind of keeping this ace in the hole... For the end of the movie where he's going to reveal that whatever it was that was communicating with McConaughey's daughter Murph the whole movie, you know, they're kind of keeping this weird, is it supernatural, what is it element in the back of your mind. And then at the end you find out, no, it it was us all along when humans became more advanced, they retroactively went back in time and found a way that McConaughey in a black hole could communicate to his daughter in the past. And it just it's it seems like. He was holding this kind of twist and it doesn't really justify all of the confusion and all of the kind of slog that we were going through. I really enjoyed everything that was happening in space, but every time they went back to Earth, it almost didn't seem like what was happening on Earth had as much dramatic impact because you had this weird element that wasn't being explained about what was happening on Earth and you don't get that paid off until the very end of the movie. And so for the whole movie, every time they cut back to Earth, I was like, all right, I don't really need to be here. Like, let's get back to space and see what's really important. I don't know. Did you feel the, the same way about that? Well, I, hmm. I, I don't think I was actually bothered that
1: much by the return to Earth. If anything, I I loved the character of Murph. And so to return to her from time to time, I actually enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to go straight Nolan fanboy on you right now. Bob, are you ready? Let's hear it. So, you you know, you talked about how Nolan always has a twist for you, and and that has been kind of a theme in his movies, you know, almost like Shyamalan, like, oh, there's always some sort of weird twist. But for Nolan, the big twist is I'm going to tell a story in the most clever way possible. And honestly, I think that Nolan is I, I think that you see in Matthew McConaughey's character in this movie, I think you see Christopher Nolan, you know, whether or not you ought to always tell the story in the most interesting way. Just like Matthew McConaughey, you know, humans were built to explore. Humans were built to push the boundaries of space and time and apparently gravity. And so by having a a director like Christopher Nolan, who continues to push the boundaries of what it means to tell a story, sure, you're going to have some failures. You're going to have that first and second planet where everything is, you know, a complete flop. But sometimes even when you're heading for the third planet, you're going to find something random and crazy and cool. And you're going to turn out a gem like the Dark Knight. And so I look at it and I go, yeah, like Nolan didn't do a great job in this movie. And I would agree with you. But I think that his willingness to continually tell clever stories will result in gems in his career.
0: Yeah, I actually 100 percent agree with that. I'm just not going to subscribe to the theory that like everything he does is a work of genius, because I I think sometimes you can tell that he's really trying hard. And that's that's the thing that kind of bothers me about Nolan is sometimes it seems effortless. Like the Dark Knight, it introduces these big ideas and this underlying philosophy into the superhero genre that we never had before. But then you have the Dark Knight Rises and it's like, oh, okay. you have Inception. And it's like, oh, man, he's he's really working with the the problems of memory and dreaming and things like that it's really interesting themes and then you have interstellar and it's like okay like i i think his career for me is a little bit more up and down than it is for most people it comes out in this movie i think in the script because in a lot of ways i think this might be one of his worst scripts a lot of what he tries to do is so visual that in order to communicate clearly to the audience what's going on, he relies on having to put words in the character's mouth. Like, the characters are constantly explaining exposition. And I feel like he uses the characters too much as tools to explain what's going on and less as, like, actual people. And I think the the character that suffers the most from that is actually McConaughey's character of Cooper. And I think McConaughey does a pretty admirable job in this movie. But even though we know what he loves even though we know kind of what drives him, I still felt like I didn't really know this character too much because so much of this movie is just watching him accomplish things that I didn't really feel an emotional connection to him. And Nolan is trying so hard to kind of like find these beats that will introduce us to the character that it it seems forced. Like there's this really early scene where he goes to his daughter's school for a conference And one of the teachers is talking about uh, machines being useless and how we used to go to the moon. But those are useless machines now. It's an old federal textbook. We've replaced them with the corrected versions. Corrected. Explaining how the Apollo missions were fake to bankrupt the Soviet Union. You don't believe we went to the moon? I believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda that the Soviets bankrupted themselves, pouring resources into rockets and other useless machines. Useless machines? And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. You know, one of those useless machines they used to make was called an MRI. And if we had any of those left, the doctors would have been able to find the cyst in my wife's brain before she died instead of afterwards. Then she'd have been the one sitting there listening to this instead of me, which had been a good thing because she was always the, the calmer one. And McConaughey, out of nowhere, is like useless machines. Well, hey, man, the MRI might be a useless machine, but if I had one of those, they would have found the cyst in my wife's brain. And it's like, oh, my like, Nolan, is this really how you want to introduce us to the fact that he has a dead wife? Like, it didn't even have anything to do with the scene that was going on. And he just felt like he had to wedge some of these things in here so that his characters seem more like human beings. And it just didn't work for me.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to me, because I I honestly didn't have any problem with that scene with the the cyst because. To me, he was just—you could tell that he was an angry, frustrated person who, yeah, you know, these machines kind of screwed us up, but they also did good for us, and you can't just throw them all out with one fell swoop. Well,
0: I'm not arguing with you the... know, and and so for me, that that scene did develop character. I don't, I I, I guess I'm, I'm not arguing with the premise of the scene. I I think it was just like really sloppy, obvious dialogue writing, and I think that's kind of like. For a guy who is capable of writing really good dialogue, I think this movie really slips into, no, no, like the audience really needs this hammered into their head. So I have to make it as obvious as possible. And it's like I don't see that in his other movies as much as I do in this one.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think that the problem with this movie is that the scope of it is so, so huge. You know, it's almost like it takes 2001 A Space Odyssey and goes like 10 steps further to say, I'm going to explain what's past Jupiter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, and... the scope of it is what makes the movie so hard. I, I didn't really find any issues with the dialogue per se. There, I mean, there were a few times, I, I can't remember exactly when, but there was one or two times where I was like, man, Nolan is really telling us what to think instead of showing yep, us. Yep. And so I'm not disagreeing with you. And And to go back to my first point, What I said about Nolan as a director was not to say that this is a great movie. I I definitely would say that this is one of his flubs, but I was kind of half joking, but half serious in that when you have somebody who pushes the boundaries all the time, they're going to fail, but they're also going to succeed sometimes. And so I, I wouldn't call Interstellar necessarily a success, even though. I guess I'll spoil a little bit of my intake. I actually kind of liked this movie overall, even with the flaws and the frustrations. I I actually really enjoyed
0: this movie. When I got to the end, I was like, huh, I'm kind of satisfied with that. Yeah, I I do think the movie had a really satisfying last 10 minutes. (laughs) Like, uh, there are parts of this movie that really, really work well. And then it's like, there's a part that's absolutely, utterly ridiculous. And it kind of goes in these, like, peaks and valleys of... Okay, I'm on board with this. And then like, oh, come on. And there's a little bit too many of those for me to really solidly latch on to this movie. But Brad, I'm really glad that you brought up 2001. This is this is obviously an influence on Nolan. And even in the last couple of years, Nolan has been working with, you know, the original film negative of 2001. They released a version last year that he had kind of tinkered with that they called the unrestored version. So 2001 is definitely on his mind when he's making this movie. And I think it really is the closest comparison we can make to another sci fi movie. And I want to get into like in our analysis, this movie versus 2001, because even though I'm not a huge fan of 2001, I do think that that movie succeeds a little bit more than this one does. For the exact reason that you said, Brad, I think Nolan is really spoon feeding us a lot of this is what you're supposed to think. And 2001 is kind of frustratingly opaque, like you can't tell what Kubrick wants you to think. But in this movie, I think sometimes Nolan is so afraid that the audience won't follow along. That he treats you kind of like you're a five year old, and that he needs to explain everything in incredibly great detail, and I think that becomes a frustration over the course of the movie. Would you agree with that? I don't know if I would agree. I, I... well, I'm kind of confused then because you just said like you just said that he does that. Well, so I,
1: I don't know if I would totally agree with the fullness that you know 2001 is too opaque and this one is too spoon fed. I would say that 2001, you just don't know what's going on and the only part of the movie I really, really enjoyed was the part that made sense with the conflict between, you know, the the astronauts and Hal. Whereas this movie, like, he might tell you a little bit too much and the scope might be a little bit too big, but because I know more that, you know, and he might have spoon-fed it to me, I, I think I, I care more about the characters in this movie. And honestly, I, I appreciated the ending a lot more. I feel like, Nolan very easily could have ended the movie right after he contacts uh, Jessica Chastain for, you know, through the Tesseract and, and left you hanging as to what happened, you know, a la Inception. But he doesn't do that. He takes you to the end. He gives you the emotional payoff of him seeing Murph. And then you see McConaughey doing what he loves best, going off into the unknown. But this time... You know, instead of doing it for someone he loves back on Earth, he's doing it for someone he loves out in space. So, and I, I really love that ending. I, I think it's a beautiful ending.
0: So, again, I don't disagree at all. He had to have that ending because it had to explain what the heck was going on with the bookshelf at home. He set himself up and he almost kind of wrote himself into a corner where he had to pay that off. And he did a great job of that. I think what my problem is and what I'm referring to more is like, OK, McConaughey drops into the black hole and falls into this three-dimensional representation of time that the five-dimensional characters have built for him. My problem is, I think that there's a way to communicate that, and I think that, like, I picked up on what it was, because, like, McConaughey's looking through a bookshelf at a younger version of his daughter, and then all of a sudden, the, the TARS robot starts talking to him, and he tells him, like, verbatim, this is a three-dimensional representation of time that the five-dimensional beings have created for you. Somewhere in their fifth dimension, they saved us.
1: Huh. What the hell is they? And that's why would they want to help us, huh?
0: I don't know, but they constructed this three-dimensional space inside their five-dimensional reality to allow you to understand it. Hell, that ain't working. Yes, it is. You've seen that time is represented here as a physical dimension. You have worked out that you can exert a force across
1: space-time. Gravity. To send a message. Affirmative. Gravity
0: can cross the dimensions, including time. Apparently. And, like, I felt a little insulted by that. I don't have a problem with where the story goes. I don't have a problem with how Nolan resolves it, any of that. What I have a problem with is that he feels like he has to literally have a character explain to us everything that we're seeing while it's happening all the time. And in a lot of his films, he doesn't do that. Like, he doesn't really do that in Inception. There's a couple scenes where people explain the rules of what's going on and how the dream world works in Inception, but you don't have characters stopping and doing narration and explaining like now Leonardo DiCaprio is walking down the street. He's walking down the street because of this. And I feel like this movie has 10 of those instances where they just it's almost like no one doesn't trust us to keep up with him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think specifically about that situation when he's in the Tesseract black hole thingamajig and TARS contacts him. And there was that moment where I was like, oh, that was convenient that TARS can just talk to him. But then I look at it and I I go, I don't know how else he could have communicated what was going on there. You know, sure, you could have had Matthew McConaughey just wander around until he stumbles on what the what's going on. But I, I don't know if, you know, Matthew McConaughey probably then would have had a line talking to himself saying, oh, this must be a three-dimensional version of a, you know, five dimensions or something like that. I don't know, Bob. I, the script didn't bother me in the way that it's bothering you. I, I didn't mind that he had characters telling us what was going on around him. That that wasn't something that bothered me a ton about this movie. The, the things that bothered me about the movie were internal things of, like, so if Matthew McConaughey was the key bringing humanity... From the gravity misunderstanding past into the future where they understand and harness gravity, then how did he ever get to the point where he could receive a message from the future?
0: Yeah, you know this what I mean movie, like this movie really screws with time travel in a way that's like it internally it doesn't even really seem to hold up. Like Right. And that and we don't that need to get into the specifics me. of that, but it's like, yeah, you're communicating with the past and you, you he, They keep saying, like, someone from the future is sending us these messages. Someone from the future is constructing this space. And then McConaughey comes to the conclusion, like, no, it's us. We are communicating with our past selves. But then it's kind of like, well, then how did you get to the future? And it, 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 yeah. it falls apart internally. Like, the rules that we've established for movie time travel, it doesn't really seem to make sense at all.
1: Yeah, essentially, it's the sense that like, if you have one time travel, you know, time strand moving in time, and Matthew McConaughey is moving on it, why would we ever need to send him a message if we've already made it into the future? Or is it just this like eternal time loop that keeps happening because they can travel through time? I I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those things where you get into time travel, it doesn't totally make sense. But for me, that was probably the most frustrating part of the movie is that I I don't think they did a good enough job of explaining
0: time travel in the way that other sci fi movies have Uh, completely agreed. And I felt like the very, very end of the movie is really, really good. But McConaughey in the bookcase kind of went on a little long for me because it was like, okay, now I'm going to explain to you what I've been making you wait to be explained for two and a half hours. And I felt like if we had gotten even a little bit of information or an inkling of like how this was going to work before then, I think that sequence might have worked better. But it almost felt like Nolan had to use probably the most crucial portion of the film, the last 20 minutes, just to explain what the heck was going on. And I think that that's that's part of my big issue with this movie is it strings you along for such a long time that it almost doesn't make the payoff worth it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I disagree. I, I thought it was worth it at the end. I enjoyed it. Now, I'm I slightly agree with you. I think that the bookshelf scene went on too long. Um, I think you could have cut that down a little bit. I think there's a lot of scenes you probably could have cut down a little bit and made this like a two hour and 20 minute movie. But in the end, I I was emotionally invested in the character of Matthew McConaughey, of Anne Hathaway, of uh, Jessica Chastain. I really enjoyed who they were in this movie. And so for me, I I didn't mind some of the flubs that Nolan might have made at the end of the movie. I I just really appreciated the characters.
0: You know, even with the lack of a perfect script, I thought it was good. Well, I think this is a good conversation, Brad. It sounds like we might come out in different places on this movie, and that's a good thing. Uh, But for now, we have a lot more to get into. We need to talk about the performances, and then we need to kind of break down the analysis of this movie and maybe some of our favorite scenes. But before we get into all that, let's hit pause here. Let's try this Evan Williams single barrel vintage. What do you say?
1: I've already tried it in the future. I tried to send you gravity waves about how bad it is, Bob, but you didn't (laughs) listen to me. All right, let's try it.
0: so today we're checking out Evan Williams' Single Barrel Vintage. Now, we have tried a couple different kinds of Evan Williams now. We've tried White Label. We've tried 1783. Today we're moving up into their Single Barrel. This is a sample that was sent to us by our friend Chris Blattner at Urban Bourbonist on Instagram.
1: Yeah, Chris continues to be such a great friend of the show. We're so thankful for the whiskey that he sent
0: us, um, for his activity on our account on Instagram. I mean, what a guy. And one of the things I really love about when he sends us samples is that he puts labels on them where he puts as much information about the bottle as he possibly can on the label. So just just looking at this sample like this is barrel number 805. It was barreled in July of 2011. It was dumped in May of 2019. It's 86.6 proof or 43.3% alcohol. So we've got all the information we can possibly have about this single barrel.
1: Yeah, he's got the social security number of the guy who bottled it. Like, it's just got so much information
0: on it. Brad, have you ever tried an Evan Williams single barrel before? No, I have not. A lot of people swear by Evan Williams, especially the single barrel, because it's a really affordable single barrel bourbon. And, you know, supposedly for what you get for the price, it's a pretty high quality as well. So I'm excited to get into it. Why don't we nose it now and say what we're picking up on the scent here? Yeah, Bob, this is a beautiful bourbon.
1: I, I am very impressed with it so far. It has nice vanilla tones. Um, there's a little bit of caramel on it. It's not overpowering. Um, I'm impressed with this whiskey on the nose.
0: Yeah, I thought that this one really kind of mellowed well. When I first poured it out, it had a very particular aroma. And then over the next couple of minutes, it really kind of settled in the glass. I do get a lot of caramel and a lot of spice on this. Some, some pretty pronounced, sharp, pepper notes, but then also like maybe some uh, some baking spices, some cinnamon, some nutmeg. I do get a lot of oak on the scent as well, which tells me that this might this might have a pretty pronounced oak flavor to it. And then there's a little bit of a funk to this. I don't really know if you're picking up on that, but like when I picked it up and and gave it a snip uh, a sniff after about, I don't know, three minutes in the glass. And the very first thing I got was like this almost sort of like skunky almost like a weed smell on it. And that's like, oh, that's interesting. So there's definitely some sort of a funk going on in here that I haven't picked up in other Evan Williams expressions. Yeah, I don't know
1: about the funk that you're talking about, Bob, but I I would agree that there's some good peppery notes going on
0: in here that I'm excited to get tasted. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. Yeah, I'm actually going to give it an eight on the nose. I really enjoy this. So it sounds like we're in pretty much the same place here. Why don't we give it a sip? Oh, that's smooth. Man, I just
1: I love bourbons that are like 85 to 90 proof. They just have such smoothness to them that like I think you're missing out if you never venture below the 90 proof statement. I'll
0: tell you what, man, this thing, it it's really smooth and it's easy to drink. I think the the back of the palate, it's very refreshing, very smooth, not super harsh on the finish. But if you had just put this in a glass and given it to me, I don't think I would have told you this was 86 proof. It seems like it's kind of maximizing. It's lower proof. It seems like it has a lot of character to it. I would have thought this would be maybe 96 proof, not 86 proof. And that's not because it has a lot of alcohol to it. It's just because we don't typically find this much complexity, these many dark notes in a lower proof bourbon. I got a lot of pretty immediate caramel notes, a lot, a lot of pepper on the front end. The middle of the palate I thought was kind of bitter in a way that wasn't entirely pleasant. But again, the the finish is really smooth and refreshing and it doesn't leave an unpleasant aftertaste in your mouth. So I really like the taste on this. I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half.
1: Yeah. I think that the front end of the palate, I'm I'm really getting a lot of mixture and depth, you know, between those peppery notes, the vanilla and caramel. But for me, it kind of tails off at the end and it, it sours a little bit on the back end. You know, maybe I'm picking up a little bit of that funk you were putting down, but, uh, It's an interesting finish. I'm going to give it an eight on the taste. I I really enjoyed that initial introduction to the palate, Uh, but it it does tail off for me a little bit. I'm going to give it a seven on the finish.
0: On the finish, I almost get the sort of flavor that gets left in your mouth if you've ever had like mineral water. Like it, it tastes like almost like it has some sort of minerals in it. And yeah, and I really like that. It's refreshing, but it doesn't just kind of dissipate. It leaves a little bit of something on the palate. And it just reminds me of a really refreshing mineral water. I'm going to give it a seven on the finish. And that brings us to overall balance. I thought this was fairly well balanced, although I will say that on the nose, it smelled like it would be kind of a darker, thicker whiskey than it ended up being. But it was still not bad. I wouldn't say that like the nose was completely misleading, but I think I'll probably give it a little bit lower of a score on balance. I'm going to give it a six and a half. Bob, you're reading my mind. I I was kind of in the same place, six and a half. All right. And that brings us to overall value. This is where I think the affordability really comes into play. And that's why I think people really swear by this whiskey so much. In the state of Ohio, where Brad and I live, a bottle of Evan Williams single barrel will cost you $29.99. It is a really affordable single barrel bourbon, especially given some of the ones that we've had even in the recent past, Brad. And I, I do kind of hesitate to compare it to those because we've been having a lot of barrel proofs and this is very clearly not a barrel proof, but just to get a single barrel at this price is pretty unique. I really think this is a very, very good value. I think I'll give it a seven and a half on value. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven on value. uh, And for
1: all the same reasons, I, I think that this is an interesting whiskey with a lot going on with not much alcohol in it. And so, yeah, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. It's a solid value at $30. And I I would recommend this whiskey. If you see it on the shelf and you can pick it up, go for it. If if you see it out, you know, at your favorite whiskey bar, grab
0: a dram of it. It, It's it's some good stuff. Yeah, I'm going to recommend as well. And I feel like this is one of our shorter whiskey reviews, but I really don't have much to say. It's a solid bourbon. I don't think I would call it anywhere near my favorite bourbon, but it's worth the money. It's a good value pick it up, give it a try. It's totally worth trying. So I think we both recommend that brings my final score out to a 36 and a half out of 50. Brad, what's it bringing you out to Bob? I am at a 36 out of 50. Wow. So that brings our overall uh, average to a 72 and a half or a 36.25. So this is a pretty, a pretty good bourbon. I mean, we're talking upper quarter of the ones that we've tried on this podcast. So We've already said all that needs to be said. Go out, get a bottle, give it a try. This has been Evan Williams Single Barrel. I want to say thank you once again to Chris Blattner at Urban Bourbonist for providing the sample.
1: Yeah, go check out his stuff. He does great, great content on Instagram. Um, he does all sorts of whiskey fights. It, it's so much fun to follow him. All right, Brad, what do
0: you say we get back into talking about Interstellar? Interstellar. All right, so that was Evan Williams' Single Barrel Vintage. Thanks again to our friend Urban Bourbonist. Brad, we are talking about the movie Interstellar, which it seems like we might be kind of divided on. I will say that I think there's a lot of good in this movie, and that extends to the performances. We haven't gotten into talking about the actors yet. I think in a lot of ways, you know, I don't like the script of this movie a whole lot, and I think the actors have to give a lot of dialogue that's hard to deliver because it's, like, all exposition. And I still think the actors do a pretty admirable job. Starting right at the top with Matthew McConaughey.
1: Yeah, man, I really enjoyed Matthew McConaughey in this. There were a few moments, and you already pointed out one of them, where I go, "Oh, that's just Matthew McConaughey being Lincoln driving Matthew McConaughey," and I don't like it. Uh, but you know, outside of those few moments, one of which was when he was in the the t- the teacher parent teacher conference. And he just sits back and he draws and he, he's just chewing the scenery at that, at that point. That's where I, I don't think Matthew McConaughey is at his best. I, I think he's at his best when he's really earnestly moving forward with the movie. Yep. And you you get enough moments like that throughout the film that I really love McConaughey's performance in this movie. And honestly, I would say that between him and Murph, you know, the young girl that played Murph and Jessica Chastain, between those two characters, they are the reason why I'm still going to give this movie a decent score. You know, there, there was some struggles with the movie, but when you make me care about the characters deeply the way that they did,
0: man, I'm on board. Yeah, and I think that's a credit to the actors because... I really love McConaughey's character a lot more once they get into space. And I kind of feel like Nolan didn't really know what to do with this character of Cooper while he was on Earth, to be honest. Like, they try to give him these character beats of like, oh, he chases drones in a reckless fashion. And it kind of establishes character, but... I really felt like McConaughey was trying his hardest to make something out of what was going on. You know, and I'm thinking particular of the scenes where he's he's arguing with his young daughter. And it's like his whole dialogue is just saying Murph, Murph, Murph over and over. (laughs) Don't make me leave Murph. Make him stay Murph. (laughs) Don't let me leave
1: Murph. (laughs) Don't,
0: Don't let me leave Murph. (laughs) But it's not it's not entirely his fault. I just don't feel like he had much there to work with. And once they get into space and he is kind of on this mission and he has to think through all this this perilous sort of things that they encounter. I really, really loved his performance. And pretty universally, I thought most of the actors in this movie did a great job. Jessica Chastain kind of has a really thankless role in a lot of ways because she is asked to deliver the line Eureka in a completely unironic (laughs) fashion (laughs) and she sells it like she's the one that has the least amount of real I don't know development I guess like she stays very idealistic and it's hard to convey that as sort of childlike idealism as an adult character and I still feel like she did a really good job I thought Anne Hathaway was really good Brad, if there's one character, maybe a supporting character, because we've, we've already said we liked Hathaway, we liked Jessica Chastain, who else in this movie stood out to you? Honestly, one of the characters I really liked in this film was David Gyasi, yeah. who played Ram.
1: I was really impressed with his performance, and I feel like I've seen him in, in one or two other movies where he plays this similar role of kind of reserved scientist who you know cares very deeply about the people he's with. But, man, when they get off the ship after losing their friend, uh, Ricky, on the water planet.
0: I love that we're just calling him Ricky. Like, we're
1: not using his character name. We're just going to keep calling Uh, him Ricky. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what his character name was, and I don't really care. He's Ricky, and he likes to film paper bags floating in the wind. Uh, But, yeah, they lose Ricky on the water planet, and they come back up. And they ask him, you know, how long has it been? And he's looking at them and you can see the haunted look in his eyes that the past 23 years has created. Yeah. And I just go, man, like that dude knocked it out of the park. I I really enjoyed him in this movie.
0: Yeah, he was the one that I had circled as well because he's very quiet, like you said, very subdued, very reserved. And to see the effect of being alone in space for 23 years uh, I thought that he just absolutely nailed those really subtle character beats. And I mean, top to bottom, this cast is pretty incredible. I mean, you're talking, you know, McConaughey, Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, you know, back on Earth, you've got John Lithgow, you've got Timothy Chalamet as his young son in a very early role. You've got David Oyelowo, an Oscar nominee, playing a a, a school principal. And then you've got your Michael Caines, you've got your Matt Damons, like this, this cast is huge. And okay, pretty uniformly great. So
1: here's the thing, though. I realized that it is not good for a movie to introduce a major actor such as Matt Damon halfway through a movie. Because it takes you out of the immersive experience. Like when you see Matthew McConaughey at the opening of the movie or you see Michael Caine, you know, 20 minutes into the movie, that's one thing. Because you're like, oh, well, yeah, this is Matthew McConaughey. It's Michael Caine. It's Anne Hathaway. Like they're in the movie. But when you're an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes into a movie and you've established who all the main characters are and then you as- and then you bring in a new character And, oh, it's Matt Damon. It takes me out of the moment to go, oh, yeah, that's Matt Damon, Born identity. You know, he's he's a thing. He's a famous actor. Wow, he's in this movie. Neat. And that just ruins it for me. I really wish that they had used, you know, and I, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but I wish they had used... A faceless C list actor who I didn't know who it was because that would not have ruined the immersion for me. I actually I, really I, I disliked Matt Damon being in this
0: movie. I will say though, like, I completely agree with that notion. I think Damon did a good job with his character, but you're right. I think to introduce somebody that famous, it did pull me out of the movie, at least for a while. And I think. Nolan does the best he can with it because he introduces him pretty unceremoniously. And then the way that Matt Damon dies is also like blink and you miss it, you know, which I think was kind of cool to treat him as that disposable. I think the big problem I have isn't even that he is a major actor. It's that he's the most famous actor in this movie. Like he's more famous than Matthew McConaughey is. And I think this is not a knock on McConaughey. But like if Matt Damon had been the star of this movie And then we found McConaughey on planet number two. I think we probably would have accepted it a little bit more just because he's less of a presence overall in Hollywood than Matt Damon is. It's, I mean, it's it's pretty similar to like them opening up that hypersleep chamber and having DiCaprio come out of it. it. It's just such a shock to see somebody that famous come out of nowhere in the movie that you're right. It pulls you out of the immersion.
1: I don't know, Bob. We might spend the rest of the episode arguing about how popular Matt Damon actually is. I I guess I just never really thought of him
0: as that popular of an actor. I think you'd be surprised at how much money he pulls in. When I mean, a couple of years after this, he did The Martian, which was one of the most popular movies of that year that came out. Yeah. So Matt Damon in space seems to be a pretty successful genre
1: <laughs> yeah, at the I, box
0: office. I suppose it is. I don't, I don't know. I guess I would probably put Matthew
1: McConaughey up there. At the very least with Damon in popularity. Oh, for sure. But I yeah, I don't I don't know. That's interesting. But I do agree with the premise that I put forth. That, that <laughs> wow. <laughs> that yeah, it was just weird to have an A plus list celebrity like Damon just pop up out of nowhere.
0: All right. So before we move into our final scores, Brad, I want to hear you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about the score for this movie, Hans Zimmer's score. I want to hear what you think of it, because I do think that it's an interesting score. I think using an organ as your primary instrument is a really fascinating choice. Do you feel like it worked? I really do. I
1: I think that this movie was trying to channel its inner lacrimosa. Oh, good reference. Yeah. From Tree of Life. From Tree of Life. I, I really felt while watching this movie that they were trying to do a, a little less subtle than that operatic piece, but they were trying to channel the Tree of Life and the the creation sequence in in trying to create this awe and wonder at the mysteries of space. And for the most part it worked for me. There was a few moments in the movie. Where I felt like my emotional weight hadn't carried me as far as the music was trying to take me, if that makes sense. Like, there's a few moments where the music felt like I was like, oh, Nolan is trying to force me into an an emotional place with the music. Hmm. But overall, I loved this piece. You know, there's certain parts where he tries to imitate 2001 by having more classical piano playing. And I love that, I, I think it's beautiful. So overall, I I really enjoyed the score in this movie, even if it felt like it, it, it kind of forced you along emotionally at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that it complemented what we saw on screen really, really well. But the thing with Hans Zimmer's music, especially lately, is I don't feel like he's really developing super memorable musical themes. Like we remember it. Take Inception, for example. We remember... The wah, Ah. but what that piece is is it's actually that Edith Piaf song slowed down by like 200 times or something. It doesn't really make for a memorable melody, and I think it's kind of the same thing here. I remember that this movie features some really beautiful, sort of abstract sounding organ playing, but it doesn't really have a memorable theme to it. So does it work? Yeah, I, I actually enjoy it a lot, but it's not like I'm you know in the shower and the theme from Interstellar gets stuck in my head.
1: Right. Uh, This might sound weird, but like, I, you know, I've never seen Interstellar before, you know, this viewing. I was playing D&D with some friends and I was narrating a time travel sequence for them. And I found some cool space travel music. And my buddy afterwards was like, oh, dude, I love that you use the Interstellar music to narrate a time travel sequence. That was really cool. And I was like, oh, I had no idea that it was Interstellar. But now that I've watched it, I'm like, yeah, this is really good for when you're traveling through time. Like whenever I travel through
0: time someday, I really want it to be to this music. All right, Brad, I think that we've done a pretty good job talking about the things that we enjoyed about the movie. And at least for me, the things that I I thought were really a struggle for this film. So I'd like to hear your final score. And would you recommend? Honestly, Bob, there's a small part of me that I I know we're going to come out to different scores, But
1: for how much we've disagreed on this episode, I would find it highly amusing if we came out to the same score. Bob, I'm really struggling. I'm kind of moving between a seven and a half and an eight right now. But honestly, I think I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. I I think it's a solid movie overall. I would recommend somebody to watch it. I, I think the thing that sells me on this movie is that I was personally sold on the characters. And if you get sold on the characters in this movie and what they desire and what they're trying to accomplish, it's a movie worth watching. Now, if you watch it and you struggle too much with the script or with other flaws in the movie, I could easily see you giving it a 6 to a 7 out of 10. But I I liked it. It worked for me, despite what I would agree. There's, There's some flaws in this movie. It's not a great Nolan film. But even a not great
0: Nolan film for me is an 8 out of 10. I will agree with you, Brad, that I think when Nolan makes a movie, he doesn't go small like he has big ideas at play. And when he misses, I mean, it's a you know, it's a swing and a miss, but at least he's swinging for the fences. And so I do find a lot of what this movie is trying to do really admirable. And so it's hard for me to give this movie a bad, bad score, even though I really do think this is just a mediocre movie. I think that Nolan treats his characters as as just exposition dumps a lot of times and that you don't really get to know a lot of these people as human beings. I felt like I didn't know Michael Kane at all. I felt like there were so many conveniences in this movie that he justified by just at the end saying, oh, but McConaughey orchestrated the whole thing, so all the conveniences work out. Well, I mean, it's like you're breaking the number one rule of screenwriting with your deus ex machina that you're bringing in. But the fact that Nolan thinks that he can just acknowledge that it is one everyone excuses it. And I just I don't know if I can. I think there's there's too many conveniences in this film. At the same time, I think there's a lot that's great. I thought that that emergency docking sequence, the action sequences in this film are really good. But this movie lies somewhere between being like Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity and 2001. And I think it can't decide sometimes what it wants to be. It doesn't really introduce those big philosophical ideas until the very, very end. And for most of its runtime, it seems more like gravity than anything else. But it doesn't really go all in on either of those. And so at the end of the day, I was kind of waffling back and forth, Brad, between a five and a half and a six on this movie. The last 10 minutes of the movie really tempted me to bump it up a little bit. But I really do think, especially now that you've bumped your score up to an eight, that I'm going to give this movie a five and a half out of 10. It is one of my least favorite Nolan films it's still, you know, I think it's still worth seeing because Nolan is working with big ideas, but it just doesn't work for me. Man, I yeah, five and a half is lower than I expected. I, I honestly was expecting
1: you give it a six and a half to a seven. So yeah, that's a little bit lower than I expected. I, I think this is a beautiful movie. I think that he the shots of space that he gives are amazing. I, I really think there's a lot of great cinematography going on. I'm
0: I'm a little a little bit disappointed in you as a human being, but, you know, we'll get over it. We'll move on. <laughs> we'll try. We'll. Try. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I had to do something to pay you back for giving Eternal Sunshine a two. And so this is it. So we're coming out to a six point seven five out of ten, which I actually think is a pretty fair overall score. I think we both saw flaws in this movie. And Brad, you kind of said that you expected us to kind of fall somewhere between a six and a seven overall. And that's exactly where we're falling. All right. So that's our final score for Interstellar, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. So if you'd like to interact with us, tell me I'm wrong. I'm totally OK with that. Why don't you get on social media? You can find us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Film Whiskey.
1: Or give us a call. If you want to hear your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast, leave us a voicemail at 216-800-5923.
0: Once again, the number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back with Brad Bird's 1999 animated classic, The Iron Giant. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.